The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, it's good to see you, good to be with you, and good to sing together. I just wanted to keep singing. So please, uh, please take your Bibles if you have them, I hope you do, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Go ahead and flip there, or flick there if you're using your app. That is perfectly cool. Now we're back in our series in 1 Corinthians where we're seeing how the cross forms the entire Christian life, how the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that this is what really shapes everything in our lives. That th- and this is real Christianity, guys, that if, if there's no cross, we have nothing. If there's no resurrection, then, then we have nothing. And as we read these words from the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1, what we have to remember about the Bible, and this is what's amazing about the Bible, more than any other book that exists on any shelf. When we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible, it is the Holy Spirit breathing upon us. It is God, the living God, divine God, communicating to us his amazing truth. It's the same authority as Jesus himself. When we hear the Bible, it is as though Jesus himself is speaking right to us, speaking right at us, and wanting us to hear from him. It's King Jesus speaking. And so, we honor King Jesus. If he were here, I think we would show him great displays of honor. We would show him all how much worth and worship he deserves. And we honor people by standing. If the president were to walk in, we would stand. If he were to speak, we would stand and we would honor his office and we would do those things. And so in honor of King Jesus, when we hear his word, let's stand together and let's listen to the word of Christ beginning in verse one of chapter four. Let's stand and hear the word of the Lord. Here's what the spirit of Christ tells us through our brother Paul. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray together. Jesus, now would you send your spirit to awaken in us a newness of life, that you would fill us again with a a freshness of the gospel and of your great grace for us, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And now you reign in the heavenly places. And so we look to you, Lord. We know that only help can come from you. So now, Lord, would you help us? And maybe would you even save someone today by your great grace and your cross and your resurrection? And it's in your awesome name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. You know, one of the core values of our home is we we try to have fun. Just old-fashioned, plain and simple fun. And I have to give the credit and kudos to my wife, Natalie, my dear wife. She is just fun to be around. She is so much fun. I mean, she is just a blast of a person. 
and she brings fun to our home and wherever she goes, she's just naturally bringing more fun to wherever she, she's like a little reactor of fun, just wherever she goes. And she brings fun to everyone around her. And naturally, I am a less than fun person on my own. I, I prefer to sit and to read and to think. I'm very inward and she prefers fun things. She prefers outward and getting people together and, and having a blast. And I thank God for her because I'm way more tolerable to be around because Allie's in my life. And when I think about that, you know, just think about your home and your life. Why not have fun be a family value? I mean, wouldn't that be a great memory for our kids to leave our homes and just reflect back and think, man, we had a lot of fun in our house. That doesn't mean we've got to have anarchy and chaos, you know, like, but have fun. Dad rolling around, playing with the kids on the floor and making up games. So this is one thing that we do. One of the ways we have a lot of fun is that we're constantly making up games in our home. It's usually Natalie thinking of some kind of game she could try to win or, or me thinking, but a lot of times it's Ivy thinking of some game that we could try to win. And the most recent one involved us throwing these rubber balls in the living room. And so, yeah, we're constantly throwing stuff in the living room. Like, we're throwing balls in the house. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, and Ivy's more worried about it than we are. She's like, you shouldn't throw the football by the fan. You might break it. I'm like, oh, stop it. I could buy a fan if I break I'm not going to break it, you know. And, and so we're throwing these balls, and here was the game. So if you throw the ball into that chair, you get 10 points. But for some reason, you throw the ball into this chair, you get 50 points. It's a very high-scoring game at, at, at this point. And as we're playing, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm crushing everybody, I'm winning because... I'm a grown man. I'm playing against my six-year-old daughter. And so I've got a lot of points at this point. And just like every other kid, when things aren't going your way, you know, she called a timeout and she started making up some new rules. <laughs> like, okay, now what happens if you miss the chair completely, you get, you get 5,000 points. And now she's figuring out ways to take away points from me and give them to her. And I'm just going, okay, look, 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 I had to protest this. This, this is not happening. We set the rules. We agreed to what we were going to do. This is the way we're going to do it. I mean, can you imagine, you know, the Rockets are playing the Pelicans tonight. And if in the fourth quarter, you know, free throws since the game of basketball, they've all been worth one point. Can you imagine if Josh Smith all of a sudden in the fourth quarter stops and goes, hey, guys, I know we've been doing this one point thing. Now I'm thinking, let's do four points for each free throw. You, you guys agree? We good? Everybody's be like, you're nuts. Like, get out of here. No way. We're not doing that because that would never fly. It's a recipe for disaster and for conflict and chaos, disunity and, and anger because you can't go beyond what is written. You can't just make stuff up as you go along. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. That, what does Paul say in 4.6? I've applied this, these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, because what are they doing? That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. They are beginning to go past the scriptures and they are applying their own preferences, their own opinions, and their own thoughts to Paul. And now this church is a mess. This church is messed up. They're questioning Paul's authority and his teaching. They're saying Paul's not really an apostle. They're, we're going to see later in this book that they are beginning to sue one another. They're abusing their spiritual gifts. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. Sin is running rampant. They're dividing over favorite Bible teachers. I like this guy better than this guy. You're a moron for liking this guy. Well, you're a moron for liking... And so they're fighting with one another over things that ought not to be fought over. What we're seeing is they are having a vigilante Christianity. They're, they're putting on their own badges and they're calling the shots. And what Paul is doing is he's trying to deflate their vigilante brand of Christianity. And sadly, guys, there is still a lot of this going on today. See it in our community see it in Tomball, see it in the greater Houston area. 
And the core of the problem is pride. It's when our, our pride, we begin to power play against other Christians. We begin to power play against other factions. When, when, a, when a group of people begin to power play against their elders and pastors, or the elders and pastors begin to power play against the people, and this runs rampant in the Bible Belt, and we're all susceptible to this. Every single one of us. We're all capable of going beyond what is written. Verse six. And what they're doing is their thoughts, their ideas, their preferences, and then now they're pressing them onto each other. So now they're getting puffed up. They're judging one another outside of God's word, assessing each other, not in light of God's word. That's a, that's a scary place to be. That when God's word is not central to how to live, but how your preferences and opinions or my preferences and opinions, that's become, that becomes how the church runs. That is a frightening church to be a part of. To where the Bible doesn't tell us how to operate, but a pastor tells us how to operate or a prominent church member tells everyone how to operate. That's a scary church. And I know some of you have been in places like that. You've told me. I'd rather be in a maximum correctional facility than be in a church like that. Because at least we all agree who's running the place. That's a scary church to be a part of because it has the appearance, it has the shell of Christianity, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. It's full of toxic, life-draining amoebas. When we go beyond what is written, we're, we think that we're just kind of, you know, we have the Bible and then we're kind of bringing our ideas also, but actually when we do that, we lose the Bible. We're actually leaving the Bible behind and we're actually leaving the Spirit of God behind because the Spirit of God will not show up in power because he refuses to play a game with our man-centeredness. He refuses to help exalt our pride. He refuses to play along with our ways of doing things. And I think this is why, guys, so many churches and so many denominations and why a lot of churches in Tomball, why we're not unified is because we're going beyond what is written. And we won't experience revival if, we're not, if we don't have a reunification around the word of God. If we're not unified again against what is of utmost importance, not a style of music, not a particular doctrine, but only Christ crucified and risen from the dead. This is of what is utmost importance. When we go beyond the Bible, and maybe we're not even that bold to go beyond the Bible. What's just as bad is that when we have the Bible and then we bring our preferences and opinions right on par with the Bible. That my ideas, how I think you should do things, how I think things should be thought and how you should do this or not do that. When we bring it on par with the Bible, what we're actually telling people is, you know, we're actually just kind of saying, God, you should scoot over a little bit and let me sit on the throne with you. I know the train of your robe fills the temple with glory, but I think there would be just enough room for me to scoot in and also say some things. And we're also telling other Christians, my words for you are just as vital as God's. My words for you, you need them just as much as you need God's. When we want to be the judges of people, when we want to run their lives. And in verses one to five, Paul's addressing how they're judging his ministry. They're telling Paul, Paul, we don't think you're legit. We don't think you're a legitimate apostle. We, we, we don't, we're not even sure if you're saved. How can we know for sure, Paul? I mean, look at you. You're not filling up our criteria. You're not doing what we want. They don't approve of Paul. I mean, how audacious is that? How bold is that? How sinful? They're evaluating Paul on all the wrong standards. And now they're questioning his legitimacy as even a believer. Guys, this, this runs rampant in the American church. People evaluate churches based off of what they offer them instead of what the church is, off, if the church is offering the gospel. 
They look, they look for churches off of what they can get, not what they can glorify. We evaluate pastors, missionaries, on how big their churches are, as though those are their churches. How many books they sold, how nice they are, how much they smile or don't smile. How often they open up their home? Do they greet people? We have all our own criteria for how we evaluate people instead of the word of God. Now, some of those things are important, but some of them, we're going beyond what is written. What does Paul say? I mean, that's how vigilante Christianity. Because we need to remember when we gather on Sundays and throughout the week and when we're together, what are we actually dealing with? What we're dealing with is not a commodity, some kind of thing that we just dole out on Sunday morning. What we're dealing with is, look at verse 1. Paul says to them, this is how one should regard us. So Paul tells them, guys, you're thinking about me wrongly. Here's how you should regard us, the apostles, and and Paul and Apollos, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now look at verse two. Moreover, so since, since that's who I am, it is required of stewards. Here's what's required of me, that they be found faithful. So what does Paul say? I'm a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, of the gospel of God. And that's how you should look at me. That's how you should think of me. And I'm to be faithful with that. So Paul is changing the way we think about success in ministry, success as a church. What is it? Servants of Christ, stewarding the gospel of God. Not how is the service? The only question we should ask, how is the service? How did they steward the gospel in the service? How is the church stewarding the gospel? So Paul's changing the way we think about him. And Paul's changing the way we think about pastors. He's changing the way we think about churches, the way we think about church members. Here's the first thing that vigilante Christianity is. Vigilante churches is where the pastors think they are the bosses of the church. A vigilante church is where the pastors think they're the bosses of the church and and they're the masters. And the members are the servants to do their bidding. They're the peons. How horrible that is. That is an ugly, ugly church culture. And it's, sadly, it's a reality in some places. Another version of vigilante church, vigilante community church, number two, it's where the members think they're the master. The members think they're the masters and the pastors are their peons and they crack the whip and pastors better do what they say or they're gonna pay for it big time. That too is a tragedy. And that's what's happening in Corinth. Paul, we told you, we demanded, we said, you didn't do it. We don't think you're legit. These are both toxic and threatening environments. A vigilante church is a place of threats and threatening where where guns are raised and everyone's suspicious. Everyone's on the lookout. Everyone's questioning each other. Everyone's scared of each other. But a real Christian church is a non-threatening environment, a place where there is a welcoming of one another in Christ. A real Christian church is where pastors are seen as, verse one, as servants of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. Now, of course, I'm a servant of Redeemer Church, just like every Christian is to be a servant of one another. But first and foremost, I'm a servant of Christ. The church isn't my boss. My master is Jesus. Jesus is our boss. And secondly, on the inverse, I'm not the boss of this church. The elders aren't the boss of this church. We're not the masters. We are servants of Christ, and we are his stewards for you. We're like the lead servants of the mysteries of God. And what we must do, as Paul's saying, we all must grasp who we are, that we're all servants of Christ, 
And what are we all supposed to be doing? Faithfully stewarding the mysteries of God. That's verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Stewarding the gospel, the great news of Jesus' death, his resurrection for our sins, that we may have new life, that anyone can be saved by Jesus. This is the heart of Christianity. This is what churches are to be all about. And even when I was writing my sermon this week, because if you read this passage, there's no mention of the cross explicitly, but it's all implicit. It's implicit in every word in scripture. So I have on my sermon notes, don't forget the gospel doofus, like when I'm preaching. Because I could get up here, I could say some things of how we all need to act, and I could totally forget about Christ. That would be an unfaithful stewarding of the mysteries of God. So our task as a church is to present the glorious news that God will save sinners through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. This is Christianity. This is what is essential. And what really makes a church successful is if they're faithful. Really not even if they're fruitful. That's what we think sometimes. It's not success, it's fruit. Well, who's in charge of the fruit? God is. I don't want the fruit I can manufacture. I only want what he can. I don't want to do the Lord's work in my way, only in his way. So a real mark that Paul says, what, are we, what is required of us? That we be found faithful. Let's be a faithful, that a faithful church will just not leave any room for vigilante Christianity. And you know what really fuels vigilante Christians? Vigilante Christianity is the fear of man, being scared of man. What does Paul think about their judgments of him? So they're trying to threaten Paul. They're trying to bully Paul. But what does Paul think about their threats? Look at verse three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So what does Paul think about their judgments? Hey, your your opinions and thoughts, it is a small matter to me. He doesn't get caught up in them. He's not fretting about them. He's not in a panic about these false or maybe even accurate some of the things that they're saying. Now, whether these threats that they're saying, their judgments, whether they're legit or wrong, Paul's saying, you know what? Those things, they're very small. We know that some kinds of judging, we think the word judgment, every time we hear the word judgment, we always think negative. That's not always the case. The word judgment, just, it just means to assess to weigh, to go, okay, what is this? So there are some things we need to judge. We're going to see throughout this book in chapter five, in two weeks, there's a guy who, is, who has his father's wife and he's knowing her in the biblical sense. And Paul says, that is wrong. So there are, like we judge sin, we judge false doctrine, we assess these things, but what they're doing now is they're, they're judging the person. They went from assessing what Paul was saying to now they're assessing Paul's salvation. And Paul says, look, th- these things... These are a small matter for you to even say that. They don't bother me. They don't make me change what I'm doing. And this is a danger for us. We start judging people and their motives. Because Paul says, what's going to happen? The Lord will judge me and he will disclose the matters of their heart. So they think they're reading Paul's heart. They think they know exactly what Paul's doing and they're reading into his heart and now they're reading him out. It's fine to have opinions about doctrine, ways of doing Christian living. It's fine. But what Paul is saying and what God is inviting us to do is to stop acting like our word is the final word. If we're going beyond what the Bible says, this is safe. To say whatever the Bible says, it is safe. But when we start interpreting it a certain way, or we start saying something that's maybe different than other people, that's okay. Our word is not the final word. And sadly, there are whole strands of evangelicalism 
websites and books and blogs where their whole ministry is to judge and discern and label people and to tear people down, to expose people. And I just don't think that is of the spirit of God. I think that is of Satan. If your whole ministry is to tear other Christians down, that is not of the Lord. And I've seen him tear down friends of mine. And that, what for what? Not in the name of brotherly love. Not in the name of encouraging one another. Not in the name of serving one another, loving one another, but in the name of maturity and discernment. What, I mean, Paul even says in verse, in verse four, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. Man, how humble is that? But here's what he's saying. Guys, our human opinions, they really don't matter. You judge me, fine. Doesn't matter to me. I, ju- I judge myself. I don't know. And look, he says, he says, I don't even think I have anything to say against myself. But that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean I'm free. They're called blind spots for a reason. Like, I could be wrong. But the Lord will judge me. The Lord will assess my ministry. The Lord will assess our church. I don't see anything that needs to be corrected, but that doesn't mean I'm okay. What Paul's saying is, our human opinions cannot be trusted as though they are from the Lord. We cannot go beyond what is written. Jesus judges our ministries and our service. We aren't the final judge. We aren't the final word on any Christian. We aren't the final word on any church. We aren't the final judge on any pastor. We're the final judge of no one. And yes, this means we can call sin, sin. Of course we do that. But we don't go beyond what is written. I love in Acts 17, Paul comes and he's teaching to these people in Acts 17. And these Bereans hear him. And in Acts 17, 11, it says the Bereans, they receive the word with all eagerness. With all eagerness. So they weren't suspicious. There are some denominations, they're suspicious of everything. What, who said that? Is he a Baptist? What, 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 you know, I mean, like, they're like suspicious of like everything. Like, okay, calm down, calm down. They received the word with all eagerness. And look at what they did. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the way you do it. So they were examining what was being said. They weren't examining Paul. They weren't judging Paul. They're judging what he said. So we're not the judge and jury of someone's salvation or ministry. We don't make the final call. And what I love about Paul here, this is so instructive for us. Paul's fear of man is about zero. How much fear of man does he have? Is, is he worried? He's worked up about saying zero. It is a small thing for me to be judged by you. Zero. You know what I mean? When I'm driving through Tomball or I'm running, you know, throughout the city and stuff, and I see a grown man power walking, I think there's a guy with zero fear of man. I couldn't do that. But that guy is free from the fear of what people think about him. Totally free. Liberated from human opinions and thoughts. And this is what Paul's saying. I, I am not chained by what you think of me. And even like right now, I'm like, are they liking the sermon? I mean, we're all in danger of this. Am I boring them? I can tell I'm boring some of you. So like, what, what is that going to do to me and what I'm saying? Am I being faithful? Am I... So like, we're all in danger of falling into the fear of man. But since Paul doesn't have fear of man, he cuts their threats right out from under them. They mean nothing to him. And supposedly, ba- polar bears can smell fear. Have you ever heard that? I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or Discovery Channel myth, whatever, but supposedly polar bears can smell fear. You know who else can smell fear? Legalists and Pharisees. They can smell your fear, and it's like blood in the water, and they come at you like sharks because they have found someone that they can manipulate, that they can bully, and that is not Christianity. 
When you give in to their anti-Christian ways of thinking and you give in, you don't stand up against, you don't rebuke their anti-gospel ways of treating others, it's like a stray cat that you keep feeding and it keeps coming back and leaving smelly surprises on your porch. That is legalism. That is vigilante Christianity. And how many of us cripple under the false judgments of others? What do they think of me? Will they like me? Are they worried? Am I too worried about what they're going to think or say or do? Do they like me? That's all a prison. That's a prison. But when you know who you are in Christ, when you know who you are in Jesus, how your life is defined by his life and by his cross and by his death and by his resurrection, it is so small to be questioned by any human. Even the worst things that could be said about you, even the true and worst things that could ever be said about you in your life covered by the blood of Jesus. So go ahead, do your worst. <laughs> Baptized in blood. Any true thing that could be said about me, or I could say about you, any horrible thing I could say about you. Yep, that's true. And now it says, not condemned. So what does Jesus say about you? Who cares what people say about you? What does Jesus say? Forgiven. What does Jesus say about you? Freed. What does Jesus say about you? Loved. What does Jesus say about you? Adopted. What does Jesus say about you? Co-heir of the universe. What does Jesus say about you? Eternally secure. You see what Paul does here? As they're threatening him, what does he do? Guys, he keeps bringing his focus to the Lord. He keeps mentioning the Lord. He's mentioning Jesus. It is the Lord who will judge me in verse 4. The Lord will bring the judgment at the right time, verse 5. I will receive my commendation from God, the end of verse 5. So when Jesus is his focus. Guys, when we take our eyes off Jesus, and Jesus isn't our center, our focus, we will become unstable. Jesus is the stabilizing force in our lives. Who cares what someone wrongly says about you? You remember what Jesus says. One of the best ways to deflate and let the air out of the tires of vigilante Christianity is remembering who is the Lord. The Lord. Jesus is the Lord, not them. Jesus is the Lord, not Satan. And it helps you when you think, when you interact with other Christians, Jesus is the Lord, not me. I'm not their Lord. I can't go beyond what is written. Jesus is the Lord. We experience the lordship of Christ together. We experience his power. We experience his authority by sticking to his word. This is how we experience the kingship of Christ over our lives, by sticking to the Bible, by not going beyond what is written. We gotta have sola scriptura in doctrine and in culture. The doctrine of sola scriptura in doctrine and in culture. Now, sola scriptura is a Latin phrase for scripture alone. It's from the great Protestant Reformation, and it was a, just a rally cry of saying, we are not going to let the traditions of man be more important than Scripture. We're not going to let the teachings of any man be more important than Scripture. It is Scripture alone that sets our, the guidelines for the church. It is Scripture alone that takes prominence and authority over all things. Not a man's opinions, not a man's thoughts and ideas, and not any church tradition, but Scripture alone. Now, almost every Protestant church would be like, oh, yeah, totally, I agree with that. They would have it on their website, have it on their doctrinal statement, but they may not have it in their church. They may not have it in the culture. They may not have it in the community. To where we agree on page, yes, Bible alone, but then how we live, that's not how we live. 
We deny the doctrine of Sola Scriptura in our practice. So we got to have it in our doctrine, and we got to have it in our community, in our culture, in our lives. Now look at verse 6. This is huge. What, what, what Paul's showing them, how he, how he did this. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. What things? Verses 1 to 5. He's saying, look, I have lived, verses 1 to 5, Apollos and I have done this. And he says to the Corinthians, for your benefit, brothers. Why? That, there's the purpose, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Paul and Apollos modeled it for them. He's saying, I taught you, and now you should catch it. This is taught and caught, not to go beyond what is written. So listen, if you're a mature believer, you have a responsibility to model Christian maturity for other Christians, that they would learn by you. Not necessarily what you're teaching. Paul's saying, we did this by how we lived. This is caught. Learn by us. They lived it. Doctrine is believed and lived. And doctrine only matters if it's lived. Who cares if it's believed? And actually, you show you don't really believe it if you don't live it. What good is truth if it's not animated in our lives? God's grace is meant to be brought into action in our lives. It's meant to be animated and lived out. So we can't have a breakdown between what we believe and how we live. Like we would all agree, yes, we live by grace alone, but yet we treat each other on areas of works. We treat each other with impatience. We treat each other with things that are not fruits of the Spirit. So we we must come back to and go, what are we believing and what are we living And you see what Paul says is the result of this? If we go beyond, if we do start going beyond what is written, what will happen? This is not a maybe. This is not, hey, guys, be careful. Don't go go beyond Scripture. Don't go beyond that because, you know, it might create some fracture. No, it's guaranteed. Look at the guarantee. Not to go beyond what is written. Why? That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There is the result. You will be puffed up in favor against one another. When we go beyond the Bible, we get puffed up against each other. And if repentance doesn't occur, relationships fracture, churches split, friendships end. It becomes less about Jesus and more about us. And you can hear it going, how dare they say that to me? They crossed me. Not, they're not being faithful to the Bible. They're not being faithful to Jesus. They weren't faithful to me. They crossed me. They disagreed with me. Or we start saying, they don't agree with me. They don't. That's immature. They're immature. They're liberal because they're going beyond us, not because they're going beyond Scripture. And when Paul says that none of you may be puffed up, pride is the result of this. And pride's really the catalyzer for this. God goes to the background, we come to the foreground, and we're either puffed up. And think of two things. I feel both of these images in Scripture. We either get puffed up or we get filled up. Both a filling of something. Puffed up with pride or filled with the Spirit. Pride is like a thing of blowing up a balloons. You blow it up mainly with two things, generally, helium or oxygen. Pride is like helium. It does, puff, it does puff it up, and it lifts you higher. But then you breathe in helium, what happens? You sound ridiculous when you talk. That's pride. You breathe it in, it puffs you up, and you speak, and you sound ridiculous. But the Bible, guys, the Bible is oxygen. It fills and while pride lifts up, like helium, oxygen, actually, it brings you down. That balloon's not going soaring anywhere. That's not having any ambitions to fly over anyone. It's staying low. And oxygen gives life. It's actually, it actually deflates our pride. 
And the Bible invites a filling from the Spirit. And our church and our relationships and our small groups, our community will all be healthier when there is a lot less of I think and I think and, and I think and a lot more, a lot more of the Bible says. The Bible says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Peter says in 2 Peter, John says in John. So like, what is God bringing us in his word? So we all have to ask ourselves, where am I going beyond what is written? And wh- where, what am I laying on to other people that the Bible doesn't lay on them? Because this is the tricky part. We're going to learn this more in 1 Corinthians, but the Bible is going to lay out the concept of whatever our conscience says is okay for us. If the Bible doesn't require it of everyone, then I can't require it of everyone. So for instance, situation in 1 Corinthians. There's a temple where they would go and worship the Corinthians, and they would offer these, this meat to these idols. And so this is a problem. Some Christians would go to the temple and they could buy discounted flank steak that was offered to an idol. And one Christian says, hey, I have no problem buying that and eating it. It doesn't affect me. Bible says, fine. But let's say Joe Christian says, I can't eat that. If I eat that, I used to worship at that that cult and it's really going to affect me. It's really going to hurt me to be a part of that. I can't do that. The Bible says, good, don't eat it. Now here's where the sin comes. If the Christian who can't eat it looks at him and says, you're so weak. Just grow up and do it. That's unloving. And it's also unloving for the Christian who can't eat it to look at the Christian who can and say, you're so liberal. Don't you care about holiness? Don't you care about being mature? See, the Bible says both of them are okay, listening to their conscience. But as soon as they start trying to apply each other's conscience on each other, they're in sin. And so an example would be, I know Christians who they say they don't want to have caffeine. They just believe it's, it's good for them to not have caffeine. I love caffeine. Love it. Can't wait to get some this afternoon. Like, go and make my nice coffee and get my caffeine. I love it. Now, what would be sinful is for me to look at the Christians who don't want to have caffeine and go, you guys, all holier than thou. That would be wrong. That would be going beyond what is written. And it would be wrong for them to look at me and say, look at you, you little caffeine addict, blah, blah, blah. You know, like that, that those are both wrong. And so here's, what, here's where the breakdown comes in Christianity. When we start going beyond what is written and we start making it judgments. The Bible doesn't say it, but I think it's right. I think it's the best. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. No dancing. Find that in the Bible. That's not there. That's going beyond what is written. No alcohol. The Bible is clear. Do not get drunk. It's way clear. But it says nothing about not enjoying a beverage every now and then. Homeschooling. That if you don't homeschool, you're unwise. The Bible, that's nowhere in the scripture. You can twist Deuteronomy 6 all you want. Or churches that look at churches that have children's ministry and think they don't care about kids. They don't care about families. Find that in the scriptures. That's not, it's going beyond what is written. Or for a church that has children's ministry like ours to look at churches that don't have it and go, they're not wise. They're not reaching people. That's not helpful either. Or that any amount of debt is sinful. But scriptures, I think you can make a, a pretty good case for responsible managing of money. Politics. That if, you've, if you don't vote Republican, you obviously don't care about Christ. That's not in scripture. Or, and there, I know there are people in our church that, go, that vote both ways. And so to look at them and go, oh, if you don't vote Democrat, you obviously don't care about people's needs. 
And we start judging people and going beyond what is written. But Christ has welcomed them. And what another great danger for a church like ours is to take a non-essential doctrine to the gospel and then make it essential. If you don't believe just like me on the views of the atonement, you're obviously immature. If you don't believe like me about spiritual gifts, you obviously don't love Jesus as much as I do. Like, these are dangerous for us, even in times. You know, eating with some friends the other day, and they were going on about the blood moons and all these kinds of things. And she's like, are you ready? I'm like, I don't believe any of that. It's like, what? Don't you think it's going to happen this year? I'm like, one, it's not going to happen this year. Because you said it's going to happen this year. You blew it. Because Jesus said, <laughs> no one knows. So you ruined it now. So now he's not coming. You know, like, like, so this is not, like, we have to be careful. We start making these things so essential. When we go beyond what is written, when we go beyond what is written, we, we end up creating something that's some kind of freak hybrid of New Testament Christianity. It's this bizarre kind of animal that's really not New Testament Christianity. And I think what we've created is the Bible Belt. And this is why the Bible Belt's dying. It's crumbling. It's morality, it's appearance of religion. That's all crumbling in good riddance. We don't need that junk anymore. What we need is New Testament Christianity. What we need is a return to sola scriptura. What we need is a return to scripture alone. And this is another reason why you, why all of us have got to know our Bibles. This is why knowing our Bibles is so vital. Because if I were to just think about it very simply, my just simple brain, to not go beyond what is written would require you to know what is written. <laughs> Done. Like, that, that's so helpful to you. If you want to go, if you don't want to go beyond what is written, you need to know what is written for yourself and then to keep your brothers and sisters from going beyond what is written, to keep your pastors from going beyond what is written and cling to God's word. I mean, guys, there is so much in the Bible for us to love. There's so much in the Bible for us to live and for us to enjoy and to believe. And we don't need to go beyond it. God has given us everything we need. We don't need to add to it. I mean, just think, I just imagine, just imagine if we looked at all of the one another's in the New Testament, in, in the Bible, if we looked at them as actual imperatives, commands, and as essential, and not as just suggestions, recommendations, and kind of if you get around to it. Like, what do we actually believe them and sought to live them? Not just as a convenience, but as essential Christianity. I love these from Ray Orland. He, he put together one another's he can't find in the Bible a list of one another's he doesn't see in scripture and yet often fully function in churches. Humble one another. Scrutinize one another. Pressure one another. Embarrass one another. Corner one another. Interrupt one another. Defeat one another. Disapprove of one another. Run one another's lives. Confess one another's sins. Intensify one another's sufferings. Point out one another's failings. Those are not in the Bible, and yet how often do we operate in those? Instead, what if, what if we tried to live the actual one another's in Scripture? Outdo one another in showing honor. What, what if we just took a Sunday morning and said, we're just going to have a championship of honoring one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think Barry Pett, one of our elders, one of our pastors, I think he is an amazing pastor. He loves you guys and cares for you so well. I think he's the best one out of the three of us. Thank you, Steve, former elder. <laughs> former elder. You too, Steve. You're awesome, man. Do, do not pass judgment on one another, Romans 14. 
Build up one another. Welcome one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Good grief. Imagine if a church was actually filled with people who are kind to one another. That would be the most amazing church on the planet. One that we would all just be like, I can't wait to be with those people. Kind to one another. Imagine that. Imagine a church that was known for its kindness to each other, where all relational guns are lowered, no one's suspicious, no one's on eggshells, everyone's just floating around in love. Imagine if our, our, our city knew our church. Those people are Jesus people. It's kind of weird, but man, they're really nice. Their niceness is hard to ignore. I, I think your unbelieving friends, they're not going to be won over because of your view on spiritual gifts. But they might be interested by your kindness towards other Christians. They're not going to be the guy that's hung over right now. He's not going to be won over because we have a robust view of Reformed theology. He's going to be won over because of the great kindness that we display in Christ. Encourage one another. And these are biblical commands. When's the last time you go, you know, I really, I sought out to encourage someone. Why not do it today? I'm done. I already encouraged Barry. <laughs> I did it both services. So, and, like, why, why not do it today? Who can I encourage? And the most common one by far, by far, the most common one, love one another love one another. 1 John 4, 11, beloved. Look at how he addresses them, beloved. That's who you are in Christ. You are the beloved, so loved by God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, ought to love one another. That's the gospel. That's gospel doctrine. If God so loved us, let us love one another. That's gospel culture. Doctrine and culture, hand in hand. When we think about the great love of God for us, that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. That when you were at your grimiest, you were at your lowest, you were at your most disgusting, God says, I love them. When you had nothing to offer God, God says, I'll take you. When you're at your most messed up, God says, you're mine. This is his great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that creates an undercurrent of love in the church. When you've been so loved by God, there's kind of a reactor happening in your heart. Though now you're going to start radiating love. I mean, at the Good Friday service, I, I keep thinking about it because it was in that moment as we heard all the scriptures and sang those great songs, it was like the love of God just splashed down in my heart. And during like the last few minutes, we're just standing there and singing about God's great love. And I just thought, I want to go hug everyone in this room. Like, I feel so loved. I don't want to do that today. So just don't come up and hug me afterwards unless like you're really feeling it. Because like, I'm a very introverted person, and, and, and like, so, but when I felt God's great love for me, I thought, man, I want to hug everybody in this room. Because if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And, and, and it was there, and happened, it was gone so quickly. And so that's why like, our prayers ought to be, God, would you just let me feel your love again? Because we can't love each other if we're puffed up. We can't love each other well if we're all puffed up and if we're suspicious, if we're waiting for someone to say a wrong doctrine if we're waiting for someone to sin so we can bust them. We can't love each other like that. Making sure people are in line with our opinions and all these kinds of silliness. The love of Jesus will become manifested among us. And maybe you don't have Jesus today. Maybe you're hearing all this and you're thinking, man, that's, that's, a, that's a Christianity I could get behind. 
this is real Christianity. The Bible Belt you've seen, a lot of it, that's garbage. And God's working all that out. But this is the kind of Christianity we're trying to have here because it's real. That's to Christ. And you could have Christ today. And really, when you have Christ, you're not really going to him. He's coming to you. And he's coming to you and saying, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, lowly in heart. He'll receive you today. Guys, the antidote for vigilante Christianity is the grace of God. Look at verse 7. This is the last thing. Look, look what Paul says in verse 7. Here's the final antidote to killing vigilante Christianity. For who sees anything different in you? You think you're special? You're not special. You're not different. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, so what do you have you didn't receive? The answer, uh, nothing. <laughs> That's why he says, if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So here's what he's really doing. He's inviting us into an honest assessment of our entire lives. And looking out and going, I've received all of this. It's all a blessing. I haven't earned it. There's nothing I can say. I deserve this. God's inviting all of us to honestly assess our lives. Who gets the credit, God or us? And how are we living? Who gets the credit, God or us? From the death of Jesus for our sins, his resurrection, to the very breath that's in your lungs right now, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. The grace of God is the leveling effect in our lives. It, it brings about this, you know what? I'm turning in my vigilante badge. I'm burning up my amendments to the Ten Commandments. And it creates a loving of one another and encouraging one another around the word of Christ. And we cease making it up as we're going along and adding new rules so we can get more points and puff ourselves up over others. Instead, it brings us to cling to Christ. This is real Christianity. So let's do that. Let's not go beyond what is written. And let's let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, making melody together to the Lord in our hearts, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, encouraging one another, building up one another, and may God do something great. May God do something great here. I think he can do it if we're willing. So let's be willing. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to, to come forward. Jesus, we look to you now. Only you can create a beautiful church. And you're, you're doing it, Lord. We have not arrived. And you are now washing us in the water of the word that you may present us to you without any spot or wrinkle, but as, as the holy bride of Christ. So Jesus, now would you help this little church, your great church, to not go beyond what is written, to not puff up against one another, to remember all the blessings we received, to not be each other's judge, but to be each other's encourager. Lord, you have the final word in all things, and we trust you. We look to you. We don't trust our works. We trust your grace and your love and your hope. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.